Hello, and welcome to the IQT podcast. I'm Dylan George, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, as a co-host for a special B-Next series on outbreak analytics and forecasting. You may be asking yourself, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting? Well, Caitlin and I will explore the topic with you. In this series, we will investigate what it is, how it has been used to help with pandemic response efforts, and what we need to improve these capabilities. Along the way, we will chat with a range of special guests who have developed or used advanced analytics for decision-making during outbreaks. These guests include world-class modelers that have worked to help understand pandemics and people who have been leading responses. We'll also talk with people working on technologies that could be useful for collecting, cleaning, aggregating, and analyzing data, the data that are needed for outbreak analytics and forecasting. So I think it'll be a fun series and we're excited about it and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Dylan George. I'm a vice president at Be Next, which is the biodefense initiative from IQT focused on preparing for and mitigating biological threats that impact national security. I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, uh, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, who's an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and the Center of Health Security. Hey there. Good to be with you. Today, we are joined on the podcast by a good friend and exceptional talent, uh, Professor Stephen Riley. Now, if you look up Steve Riley on Wikipedia, you may find the following, uh, quote, Steve Riley is an American rock and glam metal drummer, best known for being the drummer of LA Guns and Wasp. Now, unfortunately, we'll have to put away our big hair and power ballads for today's discussion. Uh, Fortunately, though, we will have a significantly more substantive and timely discussion with the Stephen Riley. Stephen is a professor of infectious disease dynamics and faculty of medicine in the School of Public Health at Imperial College in London. Uh, he has been at the forefront of thinking about pandemics and using analytics and mathematical approaches to ask hard questions about infectious diseases and public health. Uh, one paper that Stephen is a co-author and has been required reading for those of us working on pandemic preparedness and response, the paper is Factors That Make an Infectious Disease Outbreak Controllable. This was in 2004 in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, Stephen has worked on many major outbreaks over the past 20 years, SARS, H1N1, Ebola, and now COVID-19. He's deeply involved in the SARS outbreak in 2003. He published the following, the uh, article entitled Transmission Dynamics of the Etiological Agent of SARS in Hong Kong, Impact of Public Health Interventions. And this was published in Science in 2003, and it was a exceptionally good piece that helped people think through the challenges of, of that particular uh, challenging outbreak. Stephen has been tirelessly working on understanding the COVID-19 outbreak and how we can fight the virus. And, and rather the rather understated title of a report Stephen helped craft that has had an outsized impact on many people's pe- uh, thinking is a report called Report 9, Impact of Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions, NPIs, to Reduce COVID-19 Mortality and Healthcare Demand. Now, this paper has been particular had a significant impact on driving many people's thinking, including my own, and the gravity of the situation from the perspective of dealing with the pandemic, we will be dealing with it not, uh, for months, if not years, instead of just weeks. Clearly, Stephen is a, a thought leader in pandemics modeling, uh, and we are lucky to have him here today. Stephen, thank you for, for being here. We really appreciate you taking time to talk with us. Great to be here, Dylan. Thanks a lot for having me on. 
So I was wondering if you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, like your background, why you focus on infectious diseases, modeling, forecasting. How did it all come to pass? So I originally did physics, which is kind of the misspent youth of, of many modelers. And then actually, I spent a couple of years away from academia when I, I, I kind of I wanted to try living a real life. Um, so I worked as a management consultant, a strategy consultant for a couple of years and decided that although there were lots of that, I enjoyed it. I, I wanted a technical skill. I wanted to be to have a specialism, a real detailed area that I, I, I knew and enjoyed. I tried computer science and then um, partly through a kind of personal contacts, um, uh, I fell into um, a PhD uh, supervised by uh, Neil Ferguson and Crystal Donnelly when they, were, uh, when they were based at Oxford without actually knowing that much about disease modeling or by, you know, a kind of graduate level biology at all. Um, and, and that was it. I, I fell into it and I really, really loved it. I find the science absolutely fascinating. Just the the underlying mechanics of how these different biological scales interact is is absolutely fascinating and to have the opportunity to use that sometimes we hope to do a little bit of good improve decisions a little bit if we can um i do feel very fortunate to have landed uh, in the field that i am how have you seen the the field evolve over that time it's definitely changed a lot so it's grown it and it was it had grown a lot through the 80s and 90s especially in the uk before i kind of uh, i started out in the late 90s and then through a series of public health crises and and other factors it's it's grown geographically and numerically there are just many many more people now and it's not it's difficult sometimes to actually pin it down and define it but if you if you think of the people who are really interested in outbreaks and epidemics and they'll often use maths to represent the mechanism of transmission that's that's kind of the thing that, that defines the field to some degree. We've got quite a few thousand of those now spread around the world. And um, it, I mean, it's, that's great as a, as a jobbing scientist because you get friends in all these great places. So, I mean, you use a very, very UK expression of using maths to understand outbreaks. And in the United States, we would say some sort of quantitative approach or using math or statistics to actually understand the dynamics of the disease going forward. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is the real value proposition? Why has this grown so much over the last X number of years and through different geographies? Why, what is the real value proposition for disease modeling or using modeling to help us understand the disease dynamics? Yeah, so I think that's, and now is now is exactly the time to think about that question, right? Because it's the the real value, in, in a in a nutshell, is um, is giving improving situational awareness. I think that's that's a kind of U.S. style phrase that I picked up maybe in '09 during the during the pandemic, uh, the flu pandemic. But at the beginning stages of a of a new major outbreak, where there's a everybody understands there's some great risk, but we don't know the scale of the risk. The people who whose jobs and depend on making the decision and you know who are in, who are elected by populations whose lives may be at risk they have compared to other policy space that they work in they suddenly have very little awareness of what their kind of upsides and downsides are on all that risk so they look around for people who have thought about those systems a lot before and published on the questions that they're most concerned about at that moment and that that is often you know, what we call modelers or people from the disease dynamics community. So I th the initial value proposition is actually just talking to people who have thought about this stuff a lot and getting an opinion. And then that leads to specific questions 
such as how many people are going to get infected? How quickly will they get infected? When will it peak? Those typical questions that we go through. And, and then people from our community say, well, we actually need to do some specific modeling to try and give you an answer. And that's, you know, that's, that's the value. And I think it's built through case study after case study after case study over the years. This is, and really, they all kind of drift into insignificance as of you know, five months ago. Um, we now understand the, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is, is two or three orders of magnitude on any metric more important to decision makers than anything that's ever been in this space before. So the value proposition now is um, how do you make better decisions about COVID-19? Yeah, no, and it's been, I've mentioned this before uh, on the podcast is that uh, it's been interesting to see how much of this particular mindset or the different concepts that have come from disease modeling, um, such as, you know, the the famed R-naught or the infection fatality rate. Um, these are all rooted in these kinds of concepts. When it, it really struck me when my sister who lives in uh, Florida and I love dearly is uh, started talking to me about the second and third wave of the 1918 flu and what the different R-naughts were for those. It was a uh, you know, it was, uh, I, I think we had a tipping point at that point right there. But it's, uh, these are all really very useful concepts to help us really kind of think about the severity and the spread of these and so to characterize these risks. And so it's been uh, critical, I think, in, in developing these kinds of capabilities going forward. You had mentioned briefly, it's like some of the range of questions decision makers have really, or that you've tried to help decision makers work through in terms of, you know, like how many cases, how severe, when do you anticipate that is going to be the worst? What is the, the full range of kinds of questions that, that you've had to, that have been more most frequent in in talking with uh, decision makers i mean we can look back over the last few months and over the last you know almost 20 years that i've that i've got to observe and i and i think the in terms of importance it's it's amazing how the same questions are are important and the same issues arise when trying to answer them so the the first one is the infection fatality rate and and i feel the battle is now over the case fatality rate is now dead. Is dead. And the infection <laughs> fatality <laughs> rate <laughs> shall be the only thing we speak of when comparing <laughs> viral outbreaks between different clinical settings. I'm I'm even I'm sorry, but I don't think that's true. <laughs> oh well no, I have declared it. I declare it officially now. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> because that feels like an awful lot of meeting time in the past. So the, and it, you know it the, it's obviously a it, it, it's a profound importance to to have some mm -hmm. estimate of the proportion of people as a direct consequence of their infection, um, a little bit regardless of what care they get, but obviously that's going to affect it. But we need a, a measure of people who get infected, what proportion of those are going to die as a result of that infection. Because it, it's, it's the scale where we locate all the different viruses. It, it's how we talk to people about the SARS-CoV-2 virus being much worse than seasonal flu that we've seen recently. That was... That was an incredibly intense debate that took, in my mind, took far too long to resolve. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, that, and that is the question. So that's because of the way these new pathogens explode exponentially, it's a dynamic, even though it's a static quantity, to calculate that accurately, you need to understand the dynamics. And I help a little bit with some of this work, but I'm not, I'm, I'm by no means a leader within our group at Imperial. Um, you know, it's very much Neil Ferguson, Ashra Ghani, um, Lucio Kell, and, and, and other colleagues who've led on that. But it, there was some really intricate, painstaking early work stitching together sources 
from different places, data from different places, and, and getting the best, fastest view of that quantity. Um, and that's, you know, that's that we that's one of the core competencies of the group, competencies of the group that I work in. And that's the only one. And then the, you know, the, the next one is how broadly it's how fast will it spread? And that mm-hmm. is it has a spatial component and a temporal component. And then the, the third one, you, you can split to some degree, you can split all the questions into all of the detailed questions into kind of three groups is how do we best stop it? What, yeah. what is the most appropriate intervention? And, it, you know, forecasting to some degree goes through all of those like a you know as a theme um and then obviously is you know is kind of um a topic in and of its own right as well now your group is one of the the few i would say even in the world that that works really closely with decision makers and but i know that you're also an accomplished academic can you talk a little bit about what it's like for you to balance those two roles and how you've seen that role evolve particularly with covid being such an impactful event relative to the to previous uh, outbreaks the uk has a very clear setup for scientific advice and actually it's for a variety of reasons the the actual structure is a fairly controversial topic or it's a topic of interest at the moment um, in the uk but it's been formalized the overall package of, of giving scientific advice in an emergency was formalized i think largely in response to, to kind of infectious disease and similar outbreaks where in the past, kind of prior to the early 2000s, it was very much ad hoc. Individual ministers would have relationships with scientists. They would get petitioned by various different people and they'd obtain the advice that way. More, since the early 2000s, we've had this committee called SAGE, Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, which is chaired by the chief scientist in the UK and our chief scientist and the chief medical officer. Um, and that, and they speak directly to the kind of the emergency committee the, in the UK, the emergency committee is called COBRA and the chief scientist and the chief medical officer take opinions from SAGE and they speak into COBRA. So we have this framework and then below that we've got a lot of a lot of kind of uh, more people on subcommittees that feed into that in a very formal process. So to kind of cut a long story short, there's not the same, there's not the same competition for relationships and for prominence and things like that there's still obviously a little bit of that but you just you have an avenue to communicate and there's an avenue for the government to tell you what they want to do so it's very efficient in the uk i don't think um it's worked perfectly in any you know in any it's it's done an incredibly good job in lots of ways but it's certainly not been perfect and that structure will be the topic of a of an awful lot of debate going forwards and I, can can I just because I, can I add one counterpoint to that, which is just is is also during the '09 pandemic, I had the I was working in Hong Kong in a much smaller group, and we also provided input to the government there. But one of our group members there, Gabriel Lung, had very recently been seconded into government. He was essentially the second in command in the ministry in the in the Hong Kong Department of Health. So. We had a very a much smaller group with probably less broad input, which was not a good thing. But we had very little formal structure in the way that we provided advice. You know, Gabriel obviously saw advice from many different people around Hong Kong, not just the modelers that he had previously worked with. But it's very interesting for me to kind of contrast that very informal style um, that ran in Hong Kong versus the very formal style um, that that we have by necessity in the, in the kind of larger, more established UK. You know, given that you've seen 
many outbreaks and you've been um, helping with a, a range of different outbreaks that were have been major uh, events over the last uh, 15 years or so. And you've seen it from a different context in the United States, the UK and, and Hong Kong. And you had mentioned that there's you know some challenges in, in getting the data to, to actually come up with the right kinds of metrics that we've been thinking about in terms of spread, severity, and and so forth. Uh, so from your perspective uh, on this, what do you see as, is really needed to transform our capabilities to do the analytics much more efficiently and, and to do the forecasting in a, a more improved way? There are opportunities for improvement in, in lots of different areas. I think if I had to kind of go for the silver bullet or the biggest impact, you know, for maybe the, the lowest cost, it it might be just around data flow. You know, we you can think of of all these analytical techniques are are the coming together of great data and great code with a group of people who can interpret the result of great data meeting great code. And and the way that that happens has changed so dramatically in the last five years, never mind 15. If hmm. It, many, I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with GitHub and open source development and that kind of thing. Just dial the clock back five years and think about looking for some novel code to do something cool. It, it was a completely different world then. So I think the code has our ability to refine code, improve it, communicate it, and train people to use it has, it, has increased incredibly successfully in the last few years. And our ability get that code to the best data when we need it is is very sluggish in comparison so i would and that's that takes the whole human thing out of the the equation which is you know maybe after the after the comments we've had so far is, is maybe a little bit of a, of a funny way to look at it but actually just really really making sure that the best data can be uh, the best code and the best data can be merged would, would be the one thing we could do better yeah, no, I think that you're, we're in violent agreement, both uh, Caitlin and I, with you, in that uh, you know data are central, and we need to find ways of making the data flow more effectively and more quickly, so that we can actually extract the information that we need going forward. Working on a thought there, Dylan talks uh, talks a lot about how we're public health is lagging behind in terms of data from other industries. There's been an explosion of data in seemingly every other major industry, but we haven't really seen that for public health yet. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how we could push that forward. Yeah, that's a, it is good. I mean, we live in, in kind of the data economy or the information economy to some extent. And I think that's really good because that everybody understands that data is an asset and, and, uh, and, that, and that you need to make the most of that asset. But the flip side of that is somebody is now responsible for that asset and <laughs> they've got to, is it their job to get the most out of it? Is it their job to give it away? Telling, you know, explaining to people that their job is giving away something valuable is is a not an easy conversation all the time. So, I I think most of the key data, the ownership at the moment, most of the key data has some kind of governmental ownership. Um, and if it doesn't have a if it doesn't have a specific ownership associated with it, the implicit ownership of these important data is that they're they're a population good, they're a common good in the population from from which they arose so i think you know that you're right and and one thing that might emerge from this pandemic is you know major organizations will have will create much stronger chief information officers whose whose job is not necessarily internal 
you know, they're not responsible mm -hmm. to look internally yeah. that we're making best use of our data. Their job is to say, this, this asset arises from my organization and I must make sure the most good arises from that asset. And I, in the UK, in the, in the kind of behind the scenes government advisory system that I see now, it, I'm seeing really fast flows of information and, and that many, many people just kind of get it. It's, you know, if we see something cool, if there's a chart there, even if it's not published, even if, you know, obviously, you know, we mm -hmm. don't share anything you're not allowed to share, but within the broad group that doesn't count as public, move that information along, get it seen by people, get it in a table form, you know, get it so they can use it. So interestingly enough, it's like, while well, we, uh, we, we can't let you go without asking you specifically about the COVID response and things are going forward. What are the current sorts of challenges that you're seeing and what are the current recommendations that you would have to try to meet those challenges for COVID specifically? So I, I think a good way to look at it right now is in terms of, of the R number, which is getting used and abused to some degree. But the, the variation in R numbers around the world is not that great. Now that we know about this thing, we understand it, we can't quite get rid of it. We can't, no one can quite get rid of it. But if you let it get away from you for too long, then it gets too bad. You just can't, you know, regardless of what your government says, you're not going to accept the horrendous consequences of, of runaway exponential growth. So there's this self-limiting thing going on where lots of country lots of countries are ending up with their R number in this range just around one, 1.4, maybe 1.5. I don't know what current estimates are for Florida or for Brazil. And then other countries have managed 0.9 for a while, 0.8, and they've got it lower. The the challenge for every population is get prevalence down. So however, mm -hmm. so when you experience your R number around one, you're doing it with the least possible amount of infection. I mean, that's, it's like that China and that, you know, we, there's an awful lot of, uh, of debate about the relationship between China and the West and at the moment, and, and it's distressing in many ways, but it's just pure public health. If we yeah. think about the example that they showed to the rest of the world in February and March, about what is what is possible not for them maybe maybe not for everyone else but what was possible for them in terms of reducing prevalence reopening the economy and just managing the best they possibly could i i think that's that's kind of still where we are yeah no i think it's been really interesting seeing at least in the from the united states context too of the extraordinary efforts that have been put into place to actually mandate stay at home and restrict movements and uh, try to uh, do social distancing try to do um, masking and hand etiquette and cough etiquette and the extraordinary efforts that went into place that brought the r naught numbers down but they all hovered somewhere very close to one. Meaning, uh, again, for our listeners, it's r naught is the from an infectious individual. And so it's a measure of spread. But given how much effort that was put in to bring it down right around one, that as we released, it was clearly it was going to resurge again and, and bounce back. And so we need to figure out how to become much more precise so that we don't use these blunt instruments of population-wide sorts of capability or um, interventions going forward. Because you have a steady beat of, of work going forward, and what are the things that you're working on right now? And what, what's, what are you working on next? Right. So I've got 
two main things I'm thinking about at the moment. I'm a big part of what we do is getting the great data. And even though I, my kind of first love is definitely the models and the maths, I've found over the years, it's pretty rewarding to also help get the data. Um, mm. If you decide that there's a really valuable bit of data that you need, it, don't just sit there kind of whining about it, help, help people <laughs> go and get it. Um, so the, I've, I'm spending a lot of time on the React study in the UK. Um, so it's a, we're helping out the government. It's a direct collaboration with our Department of Health and Social Care to randomly test high volume of people across England. It's, it's funded for England mm. for kind of domestic reasons and measure infection in the community in an unbiased way, a way that's not driven by either the presence of symptoms or the way people behave when they have symptoms. And that, because that interferes with all of our other data mm -hmm. streams. It yeah. doesn't mean all of the case data is not valuable. Maybe, you know, the case data is the yep. most valuable information. I'm not saying we wouldn't have that, but to augment those routine uh, surveillance data, we now have this kind of snapshot look every few weeks. We've, the last round we did over 150,000 swabs among a population of about of just over 56 million, give or take. And we can see, we can see how many people are infected to the limit of, of, of some PCR error. Um, and we can see who's infected in terms of their age, where they live and stuff like that. So I'm spending quite a lot of time on that um, because I think that helps the government. Like there are no easy answers. It's, we can't, there's nothing, we, we can't just turn up at meetings and say, we know what you should do. You should close X, Y, and Z. What we need to do is, it's coming back to the situational awareness. We need to give them the very best situational awareness and let them make the decisions that, through no fault of their own, they were elected to make. It's not, they didn't sign up for this stuff, but they did sign up yeah. to take the decisions. Unfortunately, that sounds altogether way too rational and useful. <laughs> in, in, <laughs> so, but um, it sounds like it's going to be terribly interesting and, and exceptionally useful in, in understanding uh, the, the, the prevalence and the extent of the, the spread and where it's going forward. So good luck with that. And, and uh, we'll be keenly interested in, in how that moves forward. If people uh, were interested in learning more about you or learning more about the research uh, that you've been pushing forward and Imperial College and, and the great work that you've all, you and your teammates have been doing uh, there, how would they go about getting out a hold of you? I'm trying to be good on Twitter. I've, uh, I've not been as good recently. I think everyone has ups and downs of their, uh, uh, of, of energy levels are kind of nearly six months in now, six months in. Pretty active on Twitter under S Riley IDD um, for in the IDDs for infectious disease dynamics. So S Riley IDD. And then if they search for the MRC uh, center at Imperial College, where they'll, um, they'll find uh, a whole load of resources. So all of our reports um, uh, go up there first. And then the react studies, as we do those, they go up on med archive. Um, nice. So, yeah. Well, that's great. It's, it, you know, as always, it's just a pleasure to talk with you. I always learn more when I do really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your research, uh, your insights and, and how you're helping out with COVID-19. Stephen, you know, thanks for being with us. Not at all. Thank you very much. It's, uh, I've enjoyed the discussion and, and thanks for uh, making the effort to inform people in the, in the podcast because I'm sure I will listen to all the other episodes um, as, I, <laughs> as, I, as I do my morning jog. So thanks a lot. Caitlin, as always, wonderful to be with you. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Uh, be safe and be kind. Thank you for listening to today's episode as a part of the Be Next Outbreak Analytics and Forecasting Series. 
Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean to be kept up to date on new episodes. For more information on BeNext, visit www.benext.org. A special thank you to Carrie Sessing and the absolutely wonderful Kristen Zender from IQT's marketing team and to our friends at HeartCast Media for serving as our recording studio. Thanks for listening and take care.